This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Each December, the Oxford University Press, which publishes the Oxford English Dictionary, names a word of the year. The publisher says the word or expression is one that reflects, quote, the ethos, mood, or preoccupations of the past 12 months, one that has potential as a term of lasting cultural significance, end quote. Well, this year's winner, Riz, the ubiquitous Gen Z slang edit of Charisma. For further explanation, see TikTok. Back in 2007, though, Oxford's UK word of the year, or phrase rather, was carbon footprint. You know you should probably reduce it, but what exactly is your carbon footprint? Three steps. You can cut your carbon footprint by 60% just by not choosing. We're always talking about the carbon footprint of cars and deforestation. But what about something simple like my lunch, this delicious BLT sandwich? Those clips from the BBC, a TED Talk, and NPR. Your carbon footprint is basically how much you're contributing to climate change. You're going to guess you already know that, but it includes food, travel, stuff you own, the size of your home. They can all go in a simple online calculator, which spits out your impact on the planet. Now, carbon footprint, achieving the 2007 word of the year status, might have seemed like a huge messaging win for climate activists. But the idea was first unleashed into the wild four years earlier. What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number. How much carbon I produce? Is that it? You mean the effect that my living has on the earth in terms of the products I consume? That is a 2003 ad, 20 years old now, from oil giant BP. Well, Jeffrey Supron joins us. He's a professor of environmental science and policy at the University of Miami. Professor Supron, welcome. Thanks, Magna. Lovely to be here. Okay. So first of all, do you remember seeing um, that ad or the uh, associated print ads back in the early 2000s from BP? I I do. Um, Growing up as a a young kid in the UK, I remember um, seeing them both on print and in TV. Um, and, and very much, you know, clearly it's had a, an imprint on, on, on our society. Okay. Did it have a, an imprint on you? Did you think, oh, this is a really interesting way of understanding uh, climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think it had, you know, I, I was just a, a sort of aspiring young scientist, and I think you just sort of absorb this stuff around you, right? And, and um, I think it had the sort of subconscious impact of just um, normalizing this concept that we are all individually responsible for the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the inter- <clears throat> obviously by playing that ad, we're implying something that that right. the idea didn't necessarily come from uh, climate activists to have this I- individual and unique measure of climate impact that everyone can right. figure out for themselves. So start at the beginning of the story of this concept of an individual car- individual's carbon footprint. Where where how far back should we look? Um, well, the term ecological footprint was coined by um, a well-known ecologist, William Rees, in the early 1990s. Um, but as far as we know, the actual expression carbon footprint specifically um, was um, seemingly coined or at least introduced and popularized by BP as part of this um, 2004 to 2006 campaign where you know they spent more than $100 million per year rebranding their company BP as, quote-unquote, beyond petroleum. Mm, rather than British Petroleum, which it once was. Right, uh, Okay, right. so beyond petroleum, even though they were then and still remain 
a fossil fuel giant? Yeah, so this was um uh you know in the in the late 1980s BP acquired Amoco another oil company and the CEO then of BP John Brown he set out to reposition the company as this beyond petroleum and so BP strategized with um corporate image consultants Landor and Associates and they ran this marketing campaign through the ad agency Ogilvy and Matter which is part of one of the big four ad giants WBP um so this was a major 360 degree uh marketing effort um you know that sought to reposition the company in an era in which they were then very well aware that the climate crisis was threatening um their business operations so the whole notion of having individuals think about what their climate impact uh is and was just to be clear you're saying it was part of a of a marketing campaign to reposition uh what BP was in the minds of basically anyone that seems to be the case i mean we um it would we're still looking for those smoking gun documents mm-hmm. you know that really articulate from the inside um sort of the the the, the detailed strategy but we do, we do know um from some of the you know some of the um basically the the portfolios of the ad agents involved in these campaigns um that there was a goal to um focus attention on people's individual responsibility you know like the the tv ad that you just played that ran in the uk the way they ask questions like do you worry about climate change it basically forces people to naturally reply with language like i or we um you know which which allows bp to linguistically remove itself as a contributor um to this to this problem. Mm. Now you know in hearing in hearing you describe that um you know BP had some of the biggest names in uh, in advertising and PR uh to come up with with this idea of as part of their campaign. Again, I note that you say that there isn't necessarily a smoking gun document yet that uh, you or other researchers have been able to to dig up, but presuming for a moment that uh, that is what happened, Uh, honestly it brings to mind sort of a madman type madman yeah. type moment of don draper you know having sitting in front of the uh, kodak uh, slide machine and thinking ah oh, yes the carousel we're going to we're going to make this amazing <laughs> story out of it you remember that episode um, i do <laughs> and, and so uh, i mean it feels as if um obviously it was very effective but what i want to know is why do you think they wanted to come up with a par- a portion of this campaign this pr campaign that had people focus on themselves versus on this company that was now trying to call itself beyond petroleum well i mean part of it is that you know we have to see bp as part of a lineage of industrial producers of harmful commodities that have for decades used personal responsibility framings to disavow themselves um you know regardless of the extent to which we have the strategy memos to substantiate that internal goal that is the end effect so you know we we have it's been well documented that everything from tobacco to junk food to lead cars alcohol the gun lobby they've all emphasized consumer responsibility and downplayed corporate responsibility in their public affairs and, and often litigation um you know recycling perhaps being the most famous um other example of that so um yeah that it's sort of a it's a well trodden path that um the oil industry and and BP in particular have tapped into um and applied to the climate crisis. Mm. I have to say that uh we did reach out to BP 
to uh, um, ask them about their response regarding this history we were going to um, sort of stir up again. And they emailed us a statement, Professor Supran, that says, quote, BP did not popularize carbon calculators or the concept of a carbon footprint. Various NGOs, governments, and news organizations had already popularized carbon calculators before BP offered such a tool around 2005, end quote. What's your response to that? Um, well, to my knowledge, that's not correct. Um, but, you know, I, I welcome them to to correct the facts with more than just a sort of blanket statement. Um, to my knowledge, they did um, introduce one of the very first carbon calculators. In fact, they we know that, you know, they they um, they put it on their website and then they pointed to it in their advertisements, um, which ask questions like, what on earth is a carbon footprint? Um, and um, according to their own website, they had, you know, almost a quarter of a million users calculate their carbon footprint in just the first year that it was deployed. Um, so, you know, their, their response is, um, to be honest, disingenuous at best, in the sense that clearly uh, they played a key role in its popularization. Oh. As you led with at the, the top of the segment, um, you know, the I, I myself have, have done some research looking at the um, prominence of the term uh, carbon footprint in, in public discourse. And basically prior to their 2004 to 2006 campaign, it was not a, a commonly used word. And then, of course, the year after their campaign, it was literally Oxford's word of the year. Um, so, you know, for, for them to claim that um, spending $100 million plus per year on a marketing campaign in, involving this uh, this messaging didn't play a role, um, seems rather disingenuous. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, um, several years ago, I'm, I'm sure you know about this, but just for for listeners' sake, uh, there was a 2020 um, article I read uh, by Grist, by Kate Yoder at, at Grist and the Environmental Journalism Group. And uh, BP hasn't... Um, stepped away from offering the public tools to uh, calculate their own climate impact. Apparently, there's a at least one app called uh, Vive, and it is created by a group uh, called Launchpad, which is a subsidiary of BP, um, which... The Launchpad makes uh, makes supposedly makes apps, or they're their venture capital group that funds low carbon startups. But ultimately, they're owned by by BP. So, but I what I'm curious is, would you consider the success of the uh, carbon footprint story part of the the bigger story, as you said, of how expertly? Oil companies have used um, public relations campaigns for decades, if not generations, because I also clearly remember that first mm. moment where I plugged in my numbers into that Me very too. website, yeah. right? <laughs> and and in a sense, it wasn't actually – it was not a negative experience. I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. It was a very positive experience for me because I thought now I have this number, this way to understand what I'm doing to planet Earth, and maybe even some, it's got some strategies built into it of how I might reduce my uh, my carbon impact if I so want to. I mean, what's so wrong with that, Jeffrey? Right, right, right. So yeah, there were several things there, and my <laughs> I'll try to touch on each of them. So actually, going back to Kate Yoder's Grist article, um, which I, I do vaguely recall, and and um, it's it's a bit more straightforward than that. That this this um this carbon footprint campaign was was literally continued by BP. I mean, in 2019, 
they launched a, a new and then quote know your carbon footprint publicity campaign mm. with a quote new calculator like i remember the tweets i, I have the tweets so it, it's not like some sort of tangential um connection they they literally continued this campaign and and as you said it's very much part of a wider effort um well, Which, professor, yeah, Professor Sup yeah. Supran, let me just jump in here for a second because I just have to take us quickly to a break and I'll let you complete your thought when we come back. Today, we're talking about not just BP, but big oil in general and their decades, if generations long success in using PR to shift responsibility from oil companies to you when it comes to thinking about climate change. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the decades and generations-long success that big oil companies have had in using PR to really shift your focus away from petrochemical companies and how they contribute to climate change and back onto and shift that focus onto yourself. Jeffrey Supran joins us today. He's a professor of environmental science and policy at the University of Miami, where he directs the Climate Accountability Lab. So, Professor Supran, you were you were talking uh, about um, the fact that BP has continued uh, this uh, climate right. footprint campaign over the past many many years uh, after that 2003 launch or soft launch, I should say. But you were also going to tell me about um, when I said, hey, well, what's wrong with this? Because it gives people at least a tool to uh, to feel more self-empowered right. or get to understand what their impact on the climate is. Yeah, and that, that's a very valid question. You know, I think it, it would be wrong to um, to profess that we are all complicit to some degree in climate change, right? It's important to, to preface this conversation with that. But you and I are passively guilty, stuck in and born into a fossil fueled system. Fossil fuel interests and political ideologues, you know, including BP, on the other hand, are actively guilty, working to stop the system from changing. So, you know, you and I drive and fly when we have to, but we haven't engaged in a multi-decade, multi-billion dollar propaganda campaign to deny climate science or attack climate scientists or lobby against clean energy regulations. Um, you know, so we all have some responsibility, but that responsibility is not distributed equally. So you know, yes, by all means, we should take all personal actions that we can. Um, but personal action is limited because we all live in a society run on fossil fuel power and fossil fuel politics. So it's in that sense that um, this kind of campaign is highly problematic, even if 
you know, it does do, um, you know, the, serve the function also of drawing our attention to our individual footprints, which we should, uh, you know, do all we can to reduce as individuals. Mm. Let me just push on that a little bit, um, because I received an email from a listener this morning to be perfectly honest, she emails me every day. Um, <laughs> um, so maybe I should put an asterisk by this question. Um, but, uh, you know, she did ask, you know, like, why are you making a big deal out of this? Because um, these fossil fuel companies, these oil companies, they are, regardless of what your carbon or one individual's carbon footprint is, they are providing the things that, given how modern society works, not only that things that not only we need but want. And then she went on and said, "You know, you want heat, you want hot water, you want all of these things. So you know, like get off BP's back, essentially." And I think mm. there are a lot of people who do think that. Yeah. Well. Well. So. So the issue there is um, that it ignores the fact that um, these companies, as I said, have spent billions of yeah. do- dollars and and you know decades of time working to actively lock us into this fossil fuel system to lock us into a crisis such that we then you know as a as a as a result become as as your listener was was alluding to um reliant on these companies and their products so it's a self-fulfilling mm. um behavior that they've engaged in um and and in that sense uh you know we need to break that cycle and part of breaking the cycle means recognizing that the climate crisis is no longer fundamentally a technological problem. I myself come from a physics and renewable energy engineering background. We already have most of the technologies we need to address the climate crisis. What we lack is the political will. This is about mobilizing people and overcoming political power. And it's for that reason that engaging in these conversations where we shine a light on the propaganda schemes that have confused and, and delayed action um, that that's where this this comes in. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you've uh, authored many papers about this. I'm looking at one in particular that you co-authored with Naomi Oreskes. And um, in that paper, you say that from 2004 to 2006, the $100 million plus uh, a year BP marketing campaign, quote, introduced the idea of the carbon footprint before it was a common buzzword, according to the PR agent in charge of the campaign. So that's in contrast to the statement BP sent us uh, today about about this show and denying that they had really much influence over the world's uh, embrace of the concept of a carbon footprint. But more interestingly, in your paper, you note that the targets of the campaign, so the specific targets, were routine human activities and life choices of individuals in the average American household. And I think it's important to understand how specific, specifically they defined what they were trying to change in people's minds. I mean, when, when written that way, when understood that way, targeting routine human activities, it's impossible not to come away um, as the, you know, the, the recipient of this messaging and looking at the carbon calculator, it's impossible not to come away thinking maybe not fully empowered, but actually rather guilty about an individual's co- mm. uh, contribution to climate change. I mean, do you think it was that part of the 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 goal of the campaign? Yeah, it, it's focusing us on the edges of the problem. Um, so, like, I think an easy way to see this is to um, recognize, for instance, the result of one MIT study a few years ago that found that even a homeless person in America has a carbon footprint of roughly eight and a half tons of carbon dioxide per year. That's eight and a half tons higher than we need. Um, and so even if we reduce our lifestyles 
to nothing, you know, to 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 frankly, as as scaremongers and climate deniers would put it, you know, living in a cave, it won't be enough. That's not the main way to solve this problem. Think also about during the pandemic. Global emissions only dropped by about 7%, even when, you know, people worldwide came to a halt and changed their personal behavior dramatically. It only made a small blip. And this really highlights the systemic nature of the climate crisis. Right. Um, and yeah, systemic, you know, problems demand systemic solutions. And there is simply no uh, credible decarbonization scenario that doesn't include leaving most fossil fuels in the ground uh, and transitioning as quickly as possible to clean energy. And literally every country in the world just agreed to do that at the UN climate talks the other day. Um, so so this isn't sort of um, speculative. This is very much mainstream scientific consensus. Right. So we're going to come back to the uh, what came out of the COP28, I think we're at, um, mm. a little later in the show. But uh, Professor Supran, what over the years, what has been the response from these same big oil companies to your research? Uh, well, we're not they're not our biggest fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 my my research and and Naomi's in, in particular have has focused heavily on on ExxonMobil, another sort of major oil producer. Um, and you know, we have identified actually exactly on 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 point with this conversation, uh, ExxonMobil's role too, in using rhetoric to systematically shift blame from themselves onto their consumers. Um, and, and in response to that and other academic research we've published, um, frankly, Exxon have come at us with everything from accusations of cherry picking and falsehoods to just outright ad hominem attacks. Um, they ran a four-year social media campaign accusing us and, and colleagues of being part of a, a mass political conspiracy. Um, they paid an academic for hire to write a non-peer-reviewed report that attacked our work to help them defend against litigation that cites our research. Um, they distributed memos to members of European Parliament when I was testifying to EU Parliament um, and, and had you know their talking points read at me by sympathetic politicians. Um, so yeah, you, you kind of, as a researcher, you start to feel the machinations of, of this sort of propaganda machine. Um, but you know, I don't want to overplay it. I feel like I've I've come off relatively lightly so far. But um, uh, certainly, um, you know, you, you you we've seen that the tiger hasn't changed its stripes, so to speak. Um, they they engage in in what I call basically now misleading the public about their history of misleading the public, <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, BP statements to you um, today seem to corroborate that observation. Yeah. Well, we do have uh, you and Naomi and a few others to credit for really helping the public understand uh, Exxon's role specifically in uh, advancing climate denialism. Uh, but, uh, Jeffrey, hang on here for a minute because I want to bring Amy Westervelt into the conversation. She's a climate, Wonderful. Yeah, she's a climate journalist and head of the investigative newsroom Drilled. Amy, thank you for coming back on the show. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, you know, we could talk with you for hours about um, all the re reporting you've done around this same topic, but I wanted to talk with you for a very specific reason, to help us go back, way back in time, uh, and understand if this ability or um, strategy of using PR is as old as sort of the established oil business in the United, in the United States in particular itself. Would you say we should go back to, I don't know, the standard oil days? Yes, definitely. The The fossil fuel industry was an early and, and ardent um, user of PR from the very early days of, of corporate PR itself. So really starting with Standard Oil, 
<coughs> excuse me, um, in the uh, early 1900s, even they were starting to spend a fair bit of money on um, on PR. I found um, I went to you know one early publicist archive a while back who had worked for Standard, you know, from around the 19 teens to the 1960s, and and as early as 1914, Standard Oil was spending a million dollars a year just with him, and he was only one of a of a few, um, you know, PR consultants that they were using. So yes, this is an industry that's availed itself of these tools for a very very long time. A million dollars a year in 1914. Yeah, in 1914, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot today. Um, yeah, I cannot yes. automatically do that inflation calculation in my head. But look, we've got producers who are doing it for me. <laughs> right now um what were they what were they paying him to do to message what was the what did they need to message in in 1914 yeah this is an important thing too because i think sometimes people think of pr right as just pitching stories or holding press conferences or sending out press releases or those kinds of things and yes those are all kind of basic things but this guy in particular, his name was Earl Newsom, was more of like, you know, a trusted advisor who was getting involved in all kinds of things. So, for example, there were, you know, memos about whether or not they should um, announce that they had won a particular award because they, they actually won a PR award in I want to say 1917, 1918. And he was like, let's not talk about this because we don't really want people to know that you're doing PR, <laughs> for example. Um, he advised them on their uh, university research investment strategy as part of, of what they were doing on the PR front. So it was like, look, you know, um, it looks good for you to be giving money to universities, but also this is a way for us to start to shape uh, people's understanding of the economy and of your industry, you know, at a very early stage. And also it's a way for us to get research going that can later underpin policy. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that, that he was doing and even doing really early, um, use of focus groups and market research too. Like standard was a beta tester for Elmo Roper and, and like early, early Roper surveys, um, trying to gauge how people felt about the oil industry, how people felt about standard in particular and other companies where standard fit in the, you know, list of great American companies in general, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and even, you know, looking at, schools and okay how should we talk to students and how should we talk to their parents and is there some way we can get teachers to be getting our message to students so it's not so obvious that it's us saying it those are the kinds of things that they are already starting to think about in like i said the 19 teens 1920s so um you know it's no surprise that that they're pretty good at this today okay um hold that thought just to, to follow up with the I can't do inflation um, calculations in my head live on the radio, um, yes. our producers did it for us. And a million dollars in 1914 um, in, is now $30.7 million today. So $30 million, wow. almost $31 million to that one person that you mentioned. Huge amount yeah. of money. Uh, okay, so yeah. it, let me, uh, Jeffrey, I'm going to come back to you, but Amy, I want to circle back to something that you just said. Um, 
first of all, Standard Oil was had been, by 1914, had been dissolved. It was not the monopoly that it once was, right? Right. This was Standard Oil of New Jersey was the, the ah. client for Earl Newsom. Yes. Oh, okay. So, yeah. which is today Exxon. Which yeah. Today's <laughs> Exxon. So, what was the, yeah. the, the, the pre-dissolution Standard Oil also trying to use some kind of early yes. 20th century marketing? They to, were. Yeah. To fight yes. off, to fight yeah. off being broken up? They were, and they were um, not just for the company, but also for the Rockefellers themselves. Um, so they were, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, like philanthropy gets born out of this. It was very much part of a, an endeavor by one of, you know, one of, if not the first corporate PR guy, Ivy Lee, to rehabilitate um, the reputation of the Rockefellers, who, you know, at, at a certain point were sort of the the cartoon villain rich guys. And by the time... Uh, John D. Rockefeller passed was considered a great philanthropist in large part due to his PR guy. Interesting. Wow. And to the to this day, the Rockefeller Foundation funding many things, including uh, various uh, projects from public radio. Lots of climate reporting. Yeah. In <laughs> yes. fact. Yeah. Okay. Well. So um, one more thing, Amy. You had mentioned that it's not just they didn't use PR just to shape you know views of the company both pre and post breakup. But other things, including how people viewed or understood the economy? Yes. Yes. This is something that I feel like um, is Big is yes. kind of my soapbox. <laughs> yes. Huge yes. Yeah. It's a, really like there are so many, um, you know, economics programs and universities and um, speeches to sort of local chambers of commerce, local economics clubs, all of that. You see it so much over the years up into, you know, um, more recently, Ben Franta at the at Oxford University did a study a couple years ago on specific economists that were hired by the American Petroleum Institute to look at, you know, the, the quote unquote cost of acting on climate, um, which did not include the cost of not acting on climate, right, to develop models where, you know, they're trying to say, look, it's going to it's way too expensive to act on this issue that fed into the whole idea that we need the science to be more robust in order for us to justify spending all this money, all of those things. Meanwhile, this huge, you know, issue, what's the cost of not doing anything? What's the cost of, you know, increasing extreme weather events and, th and things like that was never part of that economic model. So you can see where even in that kind of small way, they're shaping how we see economic policy, climate policy, all of that stuff. But then there's the, also this whole narrative, you know, work that they're doing really from, again, like early 1900s to today to sort of shape how we view the economy, how it's supposed to work and how we view the environment hmm. um, and how we view the relationship between the two in yeah. particular. You know, um, Jeffrey had mentioned earlier that this is falls in the tradition of, you know, how big tobacco used messaging. And I would say big tech now is doing the same thing. I can't count the number of times mm -hmm. that Mark Zuckerberg insists that he believes uh, in free and open speech, but definitely does not yep. uh, do that on Facebook. So, Amy, hang on here for a second. And Jeffrey, you too. There's a lot more to talk about when we come back, because I want to um, take this historical uh, knowledge that we have now and move it into today, because as Jeffrey, you mentioned, the most recent global climate uh, conference just wrapped up. And do we see the hand of big oil there? So more in just a moment. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and just want to let you know of some things we're working on for the very near future. We're going to talk about talk about the power of deep relationships and the role that they play in nurturing your health and happiness. So we want to hear your stories. What's the most meaningful relationship or the meaning, most meaningful relationships you have with the people in your life? Is it a partner, a long-term friend, uh, a, a relative of any kind, or just someone that, uh, that you met happenstance but turned out to have a big influence in the years that passed? We want to hear about those stories and the impact those relationships have had on you and even a favorite moment that you've shared together. So do that by... Turning your phone on and looking at the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, just look for On Point Vox Pop and download the app. Or you can give us a call at 617-353-0683. Those are the two ways to share your stories about your long-term relationships and how they have had an enriching and positive impact on your life. That's for a little bit later uh, in this program's lifespan as we look towards the end of 2023. Now, today we're talking about the long history of how big oil has used big PR, essentially, to really shape how we think not just about the carbon footprint where we started, but all the way to shape how we think about even the economy. And J- Jeffrey Supron joins us. He's professor of environmental science and policy at the University of Miami. He directs the Climate Accountability Lab there. And Amy Westervelt joins us as well. She's a climate journalist and head of the investigative newsroom Drilled. And Professor Supron, just pick up where Amy left off about the long history here of uh, PR use by by. Uh, petrochemical companies. Because I I guess what I wanted to um, jump to is how does their use of messaging and PR differ from the other big industries that you had mentioned before, tobacco, et cetera? Or is it just sort of part and parcel of the same large corporate uh, strategies? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, when when Amy was talking and and you know kind of I was thinking about how how do we join the dots between this mm-hmm. early twentieth century history and and today, um, you know it reminded me of um, what was called the the first general principle of effective public affairs by um, the pioneering spin doctor um, Herb Schmertz at Mobile Oil. I think a, a favorite of a favorite character <laughs> of mine and, and Amy's um, yeah. and. Um, <laughs> I think it speaks to your question just now because of the specific um, way in which, you know, things like this carbon footprint campaign have um, 
changed the lexicon of the way we talk about these problems and their solutions. So his first general principle of effective public affairs, I was looking it up while you were chatting, was, quote, grab the good words and the good concepts for yourself. Be sensitive to semantic infiltration, the process whereby language does the dirty work of politics. Your objective is to wrap yourself in the good phrases while sticking your opponents with the bad ones. Uh, and I think that one thing that we've seen in perhaps an outsized way by the industry is, and you know, the PR agents who have abetted it, is their success in shaping um, the way that we think about the climate crisis. Um, you know, when it, it's an interesting sort of aside to this um, BP campaign on the carbon footprint that actually is part of the same Beyond Petroleum campaign just a couple years later in 2006 to 2008. BP also deployed what they called an all-of-the-above strategy for marketing energy. Um, and the campaign called methane, which is more popularly known as natural gas, um, they called it a, quote, clean bridge fuel. Mm. And they argued on that basis that methane could be or should be compared, considered part of um, an all-of-the-above solution to climate change alongside solar and wind. Um, and so conflating methane with renewables and calling it clean was highly deceptive, basically serving to perpetuate a narrative whereby the fossil fuel industry asserts that fossil fuels will be essential for the foreseeable future. And that's exactly what we've we've seen playing out over the last decade, including at the recent COP negotiation. What a fascinating Just, man. No, Amy, go ahead. Oh, but, yeah, go sorry. Ahead. That's that's like had another step of, of evolution <laughs> just in the last couple of years where, in, you know, in I want to say 2020, we were leaked a, a marketing strategy document from BP and they they were, are the ones that led the charge on on rebranding gas once again, as now it's a low carbon fuel. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you saw that 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 wording all over the place at COP. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, bridge feels back too, but they're, they've also really leaned into this whole idea of low carbon fossil fuels yeah. and low carbon gas. Okay, um, so now yeah. when anybody gets... A uh, uh, any name on the show gets a kind of knowing chuckle from the guests. I want to know more <laughs> about that person because when when Jeffrey mentioned her herb schmerz, both of you kind of at the same time went, "Oh yeah, it's one of our favorite." Guys. And I'm, I'm seeing yes, I'm seeing I'm here with herb. Well, yes. I, I'm looking at his obituary in the New York Times from uh, I think he died in 2018, and yeah. it's obviously I'm saying I don't know much about this guy, but the Times pointed out that, okay, so he joined Mobile in 1966 as a labor lawyer, took yeah. a couple of years leave to work on Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign, and then also he worked, worked on all, all the, the Kennedy's? Kennedy's campaigns. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So yes. how did this, how did this fellow then turn into this honestly semantic genius as, as Jeffrey was describing from that quote? Yeah. Tell me more I mean, about him. A, a, Yes, above and beyond the stuff that that Jeffrey just talked about, he he's the guy who worked with the New York Times to create the advertorial. Um, he is the guy that got mobile sponsoring Masterpiece Theater. He more or less, you know, I mean, he didn't invent the idea of issue advertising. Other folks were doing it, but he certainly made it a much bigger thing than it had been. And in order to, to protect a lot of that stuff, he really got mobile involved in some legal battles to lay the legal groundwork to really to eventually create the whole legal framework for corporate free speech. I don't, I mean, without Herb Schmertz, 
you might not have ended up having Citizens United. That's how much impact this guy has had on just really like the flow of information and um, how creations are are allowed to and get to engage in public life. Um, as Jeffrey knows, I've I'm a, a big Herb Schmertz head. I'm so obsessed with this guy. I think he's really fascinating. <laughs> I think Amy yeah. and I have both spent too much time reading about Herb Schmertz. Um, but, <laughs> but but like but like yeah, I, he's I think, an entertaining um, character. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean to to add to what Amy said, and it's by the way, I think it's dangerous to put me and Amy in the room because I I, I feel like every time she talks, it gives me like ten things I want to say. But but you know, like um, it, I think it's also important to to mention that those. So advertorials, for anyone who doesn't know, is are, are basically um, advertisements disguised as editorials. Um, they are um, paid ads that look like op-eds. And um, as, as Amy said, Mobile Oil, under the leadership of Herb Schmertz, um, completely dominated the New York Times advertorials. They took out one in four of all their advertorials. They had one every single Thursday for 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. And in doing so, um, they really raised to a fine art this um, practice of advocacy advertising or issue advertising, basically the idea of selling ideas rather than products. Um, it's a form of what we call outside lobbying, lobbying the public. Uh, and and it has really shaped, as we've kind of been touching on in multiple directions, the way we as public and policymakers think about you know, the climate crisis, but also just the environment, um, you know, capitalism and, and its role in, in addressing crises. Um, and also worthwhile noting is that the direct digital descendant of the print advertorial are the native news ads that pop up on your screen every time, you know, you you read a, a, an article in the Washington Post or New York Times or you know many other places and and you see an, an an oil you know piece of messaging alongside a climate piece of messaging, that's that's Herb Schmert's fingerprints all over that. Um, so yeah, it's a, he's an exciting guy. Wow. So were those advertor- <laughs> advertorials identified as having been associated with mobile? So they yes. um, they, they were t- yes they typically okay. yes they had mobile or Exxon Mobil's logo on the bottom. They varyingly either did or didn't say paid for. Um, but you know, as as a lot of like academic scholarship has shown, the public in general are unfortunately generally don't pick up on those little tags. You know, whether yeah, it be yeah. on the old fashioned print ads or the, the the new ones you see online. And well, and then the the new ones you see online, uh, in many cases, uh, you don't have. There is no actual like explicit paid for by. Right. But also, yeah. if there is, it's oftentimes sort of Americans for fresh air. Um, yeah. And and clean fuels, right? Yeah. Like and the light gray yes. in the top left corner. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, so um, I, to get us, this is all interesting. So I don't, I do not apologize for any of our <laughs> of our digressions because it's all part of the story here. But I also note uh, that Schmertz really advocated for corporations going meeting head on criticism, right? And that's yes. that, of course. N- perhaps no greater issue than climate change has heaped criticism on all these companies. And they've taken that sort of aggressive stance um, into a lot of different areas. For example, uh, you know, speaking now of mobile, what about ExxonMobil? Of course, uh, they being a major funder of research and advertising regarding climate denial. But they've also spent, here's another one, years advertising a program to develop 
biofuels from algae. And this is an ad from 2019, and it shows a scientist dipping a beaker into a pool of greenish water. Some farms grow food. This one grows fuel. ExxonMobil is growing algae for biofuels that could one day power planes, propel ships, and fuel trucks, and cut their emissions in half. So that's a biofuels ad from ExxonMobil. And according to the podcast, How to Save a Planet... Exxon spent about $30 million on actual biofuels operations annually, uh, but they spent way more than that on green marketing, more than $56 million, uh, for example, in the year before this ad aired. Now, we reached out to Exxon for a comment. They did not get back to us, but the company did shut down the algae biofuel research program earlier this year. So another example there. Now, Jeffrey and Amy, uh, this brings us to not just the messaging impact that these companies have, but actually the policy impacts as well. One feeds into the other. The Global uh, Climate Conference, Jeffrey, as you mentioned, just wrapped up. Do you see any fingerprints of big oil there, even as uh, countries reach some very significant agreements? Uh, Amy, go ahead. Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) I, I would say, you know, Entire handprints, not just fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's been very well publicized that the president of this year's climate summit is also the president of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Um, there were many times more uh, fossil fuel lobbyists at this COP than ever before, all of those things. And, you know, um, I, I would I would temper some of the there's been there's been quite a lot of um, excitement about the fact that, you know, finally at COP28, we've explicitly said that fossil fuels contribute to climate change. I'm not sure how exciting that really is 28 years in, um, especially <laughs> given that we also, you know, got rid of language around um the phase out of fossil fuels, that that language was watered down significantly. And there are so many caveats in this agreement around, you know, quote unquote, transitional fuels, which we know they mean gas by that. Um, So, yes, there are lots and lots of wins for the fossil fuel industry in this agreement. And um, between the lobbyists themselves and then, I mean, the UAE alone spent with just two PR firms that we know of so far that we dug into the data on, they spent around four or $5 million in PR around COP. Um, And that's just two of the six or seven firms that they were using Mm -hmm. to help, you know, create the image of um, the UAE and this COP president as being big climate leaders. Mm. So, well, let me just jump in here for a second, Amy, because uh, perhaps this is a situation where uh, we can't, the perfect cannot be the enemy of the good here because I understand yeah. your concerns about like the watering down of language. But but to be clear, this is the first time, as you said, that there's been this, you know, almost universal international agreement to move away from fossil 
fossil fuels. Now, did they want a lot of countries wanted complete moving away, but they ended up with that phase out language, or sorry, not even a phase out phase language. Phase down. Phase down. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, because of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, etc., pushing back on that. Um, so now the final language says a global shift away from fossil fuels this decade in a quote just, orderly, and equitable manner. Uh, And as always, the devil's in the details. But Jeffrey, I want to give you uh, the last word here, because bearing that in mind, that at least there is some, you know, well, not some, an historic global agreement now, does it give you perhaps a little bit more hope about any waning influence on the the messaging power of these companies? Because um, even though it may have taken decades, this is a very meaningful agreement amongst the world's nations. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really tricky case as Amy was alluding to in terms of how to approach this because you know it's important to celebrate wins when you have them, uh, but at the same time not to kid ourselves. You know the, the 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 recognition that fossil fuels cause climate change and so we need to move away from fossil fuels would have been a great statement during COP one, you know back in the early nineteen nineties. And the reality is that Exxon and, 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 you know, their peers have known since, you know, like my entire lifetime and more um, about the fact that this is the case. You know, back in 1989, Exxon was talking about how um, addressing climate change would mean, quote, a near term reduced demand for their current products and long term a transition to entirely new energy systems. So, um, yeah, I think that Exxon is starting to see the writing on the wall, as are other oil companies. And um, as Herb Schmertz said, um, we expect them to, you know, stick their opponents with with new bad terms. So um, I think that the fight is very much ongoing. Well, Jeffrey Supran, Professor of Environmental Science and Policy at the University of Miami and Director of the Climate Accountability Lab there, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Magna. Great to be here. And Amy Westervelt, climate journalist and head of the investigative newsroom Drilled. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you. So fun. I'm going to go now and read all your papers and reporting about Herb Herb Schmerz. (laughs) That's going to be my holiday reading. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.